And we declare that you are holy, holy, holy. If we could just have just a glimpse of the heavenly realities of the saints of old, the angels sing of your splendor, your might, your grace, your power. God, what a day that will be when we see your son face to face. In the meantime, you have left us here with a purpose and a mission that we who worship you strictly by faith will one day experience all by sight. So you've left us here with a mission. And I pray, Father, that as a result of opening your word, your Holy Spirit would be our instructor in this time. And you would teach us what it means to know you deeply. So we ask all of this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. Years ago, I was uh, back in Beaverton, Oregon. That's where my family and I came from uh, about 11 years ago. I was teaching an adult class on how to study the Bible. And I was, uh, I was coming to a point where we were talking about how to make good critical observations. How do you really know what the text is saying? And so we were actually talking about it's so important that you investigate the subject. You don't just quickly just draw radical conclusions just immediately. You see something like, oh, it just must mean that. No, you've got to dive in. You've got to figure it out. And so I'm mowing my yard the day before the class. I'm kind of thinking, like, you know, I need to. I need to grab these adults' attention. Like, what, what can I do? So I'm like, I, I thought, oh, I got it. I, this, I had this idea that I am going to have a glass up there that looks like water, and I'm just going to kind of sip on it a little bit, and I'm going to make them think it's water, but it's not, just to drive home the point that you just can't make just real quick you know, conclusions on what you're seeing. So uh, I was in my garage, and I saw some mineral spirits, and, uh, you know, from with all the paint supplies, I thought, well, I'd probably use that, you know. So, but... Uh, uh, the next day in the morning, I decided, you know, I'll go with vinegar. And that ended up actually being one of my best decisions in my life. I get to class and I'm meeting everybody and hanging out and talking. And I and it looks like I am sipping from my quote unquote water from my glass. It's it's not it's vinegar. And, you know, I start class and we I gave them some different things and asked them, you know, what it was and how they knew this was that, you know, and they give me all their explanation. I said, oh, you know, what? Well, what's this? You know, I got it in my hand. I put take it off the stool that I had there. Like, oh, it's water. And I said, really? How do you know that? Well, it looks like water. You've been drinking it. And I said, well, is there anybody up here that just will come up here and then we'll just settle the matter and just say that it's water? And I'm thinking, of course, no one's going to do that, right? But no, here comes this gentleman from the back and he makes his way up. And I'm thinking, oh, here's a smart guy, very successful. He's he's going to make some observations. and He's going to come to a conclusion that I better be careful about this. Well, so he picks it up. And I'm going to make a point to the class. It is very important that you make some observations before you dive in. Well, I look and all of a sudden he starts drinking it. And I'm like, no. OK. And then and then he turns me. He has this huge future, this future face, you know, and all that. And you're like, and like, and like, what do I do? And there was a sink up at the front of the class. And so here's this distinguished individual. <laughs> He's spewing all this vinegar out in this sink here. It's one of my shining moments. You know what I'm saying? And. You know, shortly after that, my family and I, we had to relocate to Texas. Okay. <laughs> I had done all the good that I could up there, and they thought it was best that I go try helping some folks out someplace else. So, no, that wasn't really exactly what happened. But that, that man learned a big lesson, as did the class. You just want to make just real quick assumptions about what you're seeing. You know, radical assumptions. 
many, I'd say millions of people are making radical assumptions about their relationship with God. They assume that they are fine with God because they prayed when they were desperate. They're in a church, maybe in a church like ours. Some say, hey, I've been baptized. My family's a Christian. I've done good things. I, I've been on church outings. I, I've even been on a short-term mission trip, if that doesn't just make it all right with God, right? But my question to you is, are you certain of your spiritual status? Or are you drawing some radical assumptions? Are you really in right relationship with God. Well, today we're going to encounter some people that were drawing some radical assumptions and they were completely wrong. Now, we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been along on this journey, we've come to Matthew chapter 12, which is kind of like the big turning point in the book. Because Jesus has done all these miracles, healing the sick, giving blind people sight, cleansing lepers. He did this amazing miracle. He actually raised someone from the dead. If there's any questions about his identity, whether or not he's God, that should have resolved it right there. But no, he does another miracle where he actually casts out a demon of a guy who's both blind and can't speak. And the people are saying, this must be the Messiah. In fact, you can see it. Remember, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23 says, this has got to be the son of David, right? They're asking their religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, he's the one, right? Who else could do all this if he's not the Messiah? And in verse 24, the Pharisees said, you know what? Uh Uh-uh. This man, this Jesus, he casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That's this guy is in league with Satan. And they made their verdict. And with that comes this turning point where Jesus is now going to call into question. Are you really in right relationship with God? And that's where we pick it up. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. And what I want to do is I want to present to you three questions that are going to really help you know in your heart whether you are really in right relationship with God. And the first question is this. What do your words reveal about what you believe about Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus says in verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So here are these Pharisees and the scribes. They're right here. The crowds are gathered all around this. And Jesus says, make up your mind about me. Now, the word make can be used in a literal sense, like I make a clay pot, I make a chair, or it can be used in a figurative sense, like make up your mind. And that's how Jesus is using it here. He says, you make a decision. You know, do good trees produce bad fruit or vice versa? Absolutely not. You look at the works that I've been doing. Everything that I've been preaching, I've been saying, I correctly lay out the true intent of the law. I do these miracles to authenticate who I am. Honestly, do you really think that I am in league with the devil and that I'm an evil person, that I'm an, I'm Beelzebul? Do you think that? And yet I do all these good things? Jesus says, you better make up your mind. The tree is known by its fruit. What I do emanates from who I am, and so it is with you. Well, then he says, verse 34, and this is about as amped up and as strong as it gets in the scriptures. Jesus said, you brood of vipers, literally you family, you offspring of serpents, snakes. How can you being evil speak what is good? Jesus says, let me tell you the reality of the matter. 
You're all dressed up in all your nice little religious garb. Everybody bows down before you and calls you the religious authorities. And you love that. In fact, you pride yourself in it. But the reality is you are actually evil. How in the world can you even make good, proper or correct conclusions? He says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Here's one of the most basic principles of Scripture. What's going on inside comes out your mouth. And when he talks about the heart, we think emotion, heart, love, right? We think all these little emotion, but the heart actually in in biblical language actually spoke of mind, reason, thinking, thinking. The whole idea of emotion had the idea of like your stomach area or to use more of an antiquated word, your bowels. Okay, when you feel deeply about something or you're moved, I mean, have you ever noticed that you just say like you're trembling inside? That's what they would attribute to like the bowels of the stomach. But your heart was your mind, your reason, your processing. And he says, whatever you think about, what you process, the conclusions that you have in your heart, they make their way out of your mouth. And Jesus didn't have to go too far to have a stellar illustration of what that looked like. Because you remember what happened here? Jesus, right before that, Jesus said, when you attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan, you have actually committed the unpardonable sin. Remember that in verse 32? He said, if you actually attribute what I do, the true Messiah, the Son of Man, my miracles and my works, which I do by the power of the Spirit, you see them, you see me doing them, and you say, that is the work of Satan. Jesus says, you will not be forgiven in this life, this generation, or this age, or the age to come. And that's what the impardonable sin is. I don't think that you can replicate that because Jesus is not walking the earth physically today. And you can't say, Jesus, I see you and your work and I attribute it to Satan. That is the conclusion I draw. But I want you to see that that you know where that all came from. Those conclusions came from a wicked, evil heart, because whatever is going on inside comes out outside. For instance, if you harbor ill will towards someone. You ever done that? It has a way of coming out of your mouth, doesn't it? Are you a lustful person inside? Oh, yeah, I try not to. Everybody know about that. But you were just a raging cauldron of lust. It comes out in crude and, and rude remarks. It just has a way of, of, of manifesting. If you're a person who is persistently angry and hateful, you've got an anger issue. It comes out your mouth, doesn't it? Look at those words that you uttered last month or yesterday. That's, that's how it works. On the other hand, if you're genuinely kind, you're loving, you're loyal, it has a way of being expressed with your mouth. Like we just got done singing worship songs to God. Hopefully it's from the heart because if it wasn't, it was all in vain. Actually, that's one of the things that God greatly detests is lip service minus heart commitment. When you've got a love for the Lord, a love for people, you care, you mean something, you're loyal, you're a man of your word. When you, this woman says something, it's going to happen. That all has a way because it's in here, of coming out your mouth. Well, Jesus says, you know what? Let me tell you what's going on here. Verse 35, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. That word treasure is literally the word thesaurus. It's where we get our word thesaurus. It is a treasury. A thesaurus is what? A treasury of words? Your heart. Your processing, your mind, your reasoning, it's a treasure of your thoughts, your loyalties, your loves, your ambitions, your attitudes, and they will be drawn out. In fact, that's where it comes from. If you're a teacher, 
You fill your heart up and out come out of the heart come the words, come the concepts. He says, that's you say evil things about me. Jesus says, it's a heart issue. And I want to bring this to your attention. But he says, verse 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? He's saying the words that come out of your mouth, they actually reveal your heart. They reveal your, where you're at. So, for instance, he's not saying that if you say good things about Jesus, that makes you right with God. He's saying the words that you speak actually reflect your true relationship with me. And if you speak evil about me, it's because you don't have a relationship with me. You got something wrong with your heart. You are broken. You are you are you're wicked inside. You need cleansing. There is sin being manifested internally that is revealing itself externally. You need me. On the other hand, if you can speak of God's wonder, of his grace, of his love, of your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, it comes from a heart that is right with him. But it's kind of like this. If you were if you got a gun, a firearm, and you're just carelessly shooting that thing off in some place. You are responsible for that because you are the one you you own that your careless words. You are one day going to be held account to God for them. So. For instance. Most people don't think that's true. Most people don't really even think that God is one day going to hold them into account, that he will judge them for what they say. I just think that that's. That could never happen. It's kind of like this guy I was reading about. His name is John Bukema. And uh, he had moved into a new state and he was trying to get a driver's license. And so he goes to the DMV and he's standing in line and there's one of the civil servants there. And that civil servant very civilly told him, I'm sorry, we cannot issue a license here in the state uh, because your license has been suspended in the state of Massachusetts. What? I hadn't lived in Massachusetts in over 10 years. He says, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to work that out with them. But we can't issue a state here. Your, your license has been suspended. Well, he makes five long distance phone calls uh, to Massachusetts. He eventually finds out that, indeed, he is an outlaw. He had failed to, to pay an excise tax of two dollars many years ago when he lived in Massachusetts. He didn't obviously think a big deal about that. I mean, come on, two dollar little excise tax. Well, it was obviously a big department deal with the DMV back there. Well, they just let that continue to accrue. It, it had penalties. It drew interest. And they said, you know, not only you had to pay that and all the fees with that, you have to now get a Massachusetts license, and you're going to have to buy another registration for that car, which had actually long ago turned into scrap metal. You've got, you've got to be kidding me. No. So the whole bill comes to about $300 that he had to pay. And he's just like, this is just crazy that I would be held accountable for something so small, isn't it? Just a little $2 little excise tax, please. How much more shocking will it be when every single individual stands before God and he knows every single careless word that was uttered? You didn't think it was a big deal. You used God's name in vain. You wanted to make a point in the meeting. So use Jesus to back you up in a slang kind of way. All of that you will absolutely be held account for because 
the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Now, this this could be paralyzing, couldn't it? Because think of it. I mean, we have placed our faith in Christ. Now, what is God going to hold us accountable for our words, especially those that we've uttered carelessly? What's going to happen to us? Let me tell you about the beauty of the gospel. It's that Jesus has indeed paid it all. It is, it is such an amazing gift that we're just like, come on, how could that be? But the reality is, is that if you place your faith and trust in Christ, you won't be held accountable because God will have already judged it as sin and Christ has paid for it on your account. And what about, what, what about all of your sins since becoming a Christian? I mean, that could be somewhat bothersome. You've, you've become a Christian, you think like, oh, wow, I'll never sin again. How great is that? And then the next week, whoa, what did I just do? What, what happened here? Are, are you still forgiven of those sins? Does Jesus just pay to it up to the point of salvation and after that you're on your own? No, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has paid it all. And if you understand what I am saying, it leads to a much greater worship, a deeper sense of love and awe. But what do you say about Jesus? What do you say? Because your words reveal what you really believe about Jesus Christ. Let me give you another question to help you understand. Are you truly in real relationship with God? Not only do I want to ask you, what do your words reveal? Okay, not that just because we say the right things that makes you right with God. But if you were right with God, it's going to be reflected in your speech. Let me give you a second question. Have you repented and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord? Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. When Jesus called them a brood of vipers in front of the crowd, how do you think that went over? Uh Uh-uh. This made them livid. It did not set well. When Jesus says, you are bad trees and you produce bad fruit, brood of vipers, you have missed it. This was totally upsetting to them. And they had to do something because Jesus was pretty much derailing them. And so we are going to find out in the next verse here, beginning in verse 38, that they come. And and at first this seems rather unusual. But in verse 38, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, it's like this delegation that comes. Teacher. Wow, that's pretty respectable. Look at that. See that respect there? Teacher. We want to see a sign from you. Now, if they had just not too long ago called him Beelzebul, right? Okay, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of the demons. Now they're coming up to teach her. It's like they're coming off like, we're going to act real respectable. Okay? Because, you see, they're going to try to do something here to convince the masses that indeed Jesus really isn't the Messiah. And they say, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see an attesting miracle. We want you to prove yourself that indeed... You are the Messiah. Now, the Pharisees, there's the separatists, the scribes. These were like the lawyers of the day, and they had studied the law. You had to be at least 30 years old to be a scribe. You had to be a master of the Hebrew scriptures, and they had many years of intense study of it. Okay, these guys are coming up. They are the recognized authority. Now, the people, the crowds are gathering around, and they are waiting to see what do the leaders say. And if anybody can handle the situation of determining whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, who should it be? The leaders, right? They ought to be able to get this figured out. And so they asked Jesus to do some sort of sign. They're coming off real respectable, real 
We're showing a lot of deference to Jesus here. We're going to call him teacher. We're not going to call him son of David or Messiah or anything like that. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, a sign is a an attesting miracle. Now, that's what Jesus has been doing all along. All that all the healings that he's been doing, casting out demons, lepers, the people that were couldn't walk and now he makes their walking, all that healing, the raising of the dead, all of these were miracles, attesting miracles of who he is. At first it seems like, well, what more do you want him to do? But it seems that they're setting up that there is a special miracle that you must do if you're the Messiah. And they're going to ask the exact same question a few chapters later. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, they're going to say, we want to see from you a sign from heaven, an attesting miracle from heaven. They're asking him to do something that has not previously been done. Perhaps they wanted to see like the sun just stop. In motion as you know, the earth is rotating. They wanted to see that stop or maybe to see the moon actually go across the sky or a constellation actually change position. Or maybe like in Joel where it's predicted that the, the moon is going to turn into like blood. They're they're suggesting that the Messiah ought to be able to do something like that. Now, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah is going to do one of these kind of astronomical type miracles. But they are leading the crowd to believe that Jesus has, has to do this if he's really Messiah. And in other words, they're saying, you submit to us and you do a miracle as we request on our timetable. You show the people that you're under us and you submit to us because the Messiah certainly will be able to do what we say. We're the Jewish religious leaders. And if you were truly the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, you ought to be able to do this miracle. So they come to him and say, we want to see you do a sign. Now, Jesus, he could, he could do whatever he wanted. He could do a miracle like maybe they were expecting. But Jesus says, you know what? You've already locked in your decision. You've already said that what I do is done by the spirit of Beelzebul, when indeed it's the spirit of God. So look how Jesus responds to him. Verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. He says an evil and adulterous generation. He says the true reality is, is that you are far from God and you are far from me. When he talks about an adulterous generation, oftentimes God's relationship, his covenant relationship with his people, Israel, was referred to like a marriage and when when the uh, Jewish people would start going out and flirting with other gods and bowing down to idols and hiding in their house and disregarding the one true God, God saw that as a breach of the marriage contract that he had with them. He called it adultery. And Jesus is saying, you chasing after all your traditions, you rejecting me, that is spiritual adultery. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation You crave for a sign, but I'm not going to give you a sign, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And they're I'm sure at this point they're going, what? And verse 40, he says, and just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm not going to give you any sign. I'm not going to do anything that you want me to do. I'm going to give you one sign that will authenticate to the world for all time that I'm the Messiah. And that is the sign of Jonah. 
You remember Jonah? He actually had been swallowed by a fish, obviously a very large fish. And he spent three days and three nights in there, and then he's regurgitated upon the land. And then he decides that he's going to go and fulfill his ministry. Okay? God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them to repent. Jonah said, I don't think that's a real good idea. I hate those people, so I'm going to go elsewhere. God says, no, I have ways of getting things done. Okay? And so he has them thrown over the board off the ship. He is swallowed by his fish. He's regurgitated on shore. And he comes back after being in there three days, three nights. Jesus then says, that's what's going to happen to me. I will be in the heart of the earth three days, three nights, and you will then again see me. Now, this three days, three nights, let me just tell you, in Jewish thought, even a part of a day was considered a whole day. So even if it was just one hour of a day, in Jewish thought, that was considered a whole day. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be in the grave three days, three nights, but I will rise again, and you will see me just like you saw Jonah. That will be the sign for you, my resurrection. Get ready. Well, now, just a, just a note here. There's two different types of kind of prophecies regarding Christ in the Scripture. There is the one that we could call, like, verbally predictive. These are specific details, like Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, or he'll be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, or that he will reign under, as a son of David, like in Jeremiah 23. But then there's also, uh, like, typical, like, it's a type, and the only types that we can really have confidence in are those that the Scriptures in the New Testament say that are true of the Old Testament, and this is one of them. Okay, no one would have thought reading Jonah were like, oh, that's automatically going to be prophesied about something about the Messiah. We would not know that unless the New Testament tells us that, and that's what we find going on in verse 40. Jesus says that's going to be your miracle, but then he says, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. You see that in verse 41? And will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, this is huge what's going on. You see, when Jonah actually does show up in Nineveh, he's, his skin has got to be all bleached out, man. He looks, he looks bad in a bad sense, okay? Not a cool sense, right? He's, he's had all these gastric juices, He has been severely punished by God, in a sense, because he was so rebellious. Now he goes to Nineveh, and you know what his message was? His message wasn't, God loves you, and he's got this great plan for your life, and and just kind of add him to your life. No, his message was pretty simple. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. You can read it, Jonah chapter 3. That was his message. Furthermore, did Jonah love the people he was, quote-unquote, reaching out to? No, he hated them. How do you know that? Well, in chapter four, the next chapter, after he gets done walking through the city in three days, telling him to repent, he goes and sets up camp to walk up on a cliff to watch God just destroy Nineveh. And he's looking forward to the whole idea. He didn't care about him, but he fulfilled the ministry and he preached, you better repent because God's going to bring judgment. And how did the, the Ninevites respond? If you the Ninevites, OK, pagan people were wicked. The Ninevites were kind of at the upper echelon of wickedness. They were brutal. There was a reason why Jonah hated them. They destroyed and, I mean, they had all sorts of weird ways of torturing people, and they did it to the Jewish people, and Jonah hated them for it. And yet, when Jonah preached this message, you're going to be destroyed, starting from the lowest all the way to the king, They repented. Even the king, he put on sackcloth and he sat in ashes and he gave this decree. I want everyone to wear sackcloth, which was a a 
illustration that you're broken. And he said, not only all the people, all the animals, which is like, what? But you can read on even the animals, they got to repent. Right. I want them wearing sackcloth because I am showing God we are absolutely broken. They had no previous knowledge of one true living God. And yet this was one of the most amazing revivals that has ever broken out. And a completely pagan people now all of a sudden turn to God and they are repentant and they're begging for grace and mercy. And God gives it and spares it. And look at Jesus says. And they repented. You see that in verse 41? They changed directions. They didn't add just God to their plethora of gods. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And he, Jesus says, you know what? Something greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh, they're going to stand up and condemn you, the Israelites. You see, the Israelites had pretty much the exact opposite situation. They experienced God's covenant. They had the promises. They had blessing, protection. God had taken this little nation and protected them, spared them, given them all sorts of amazing gifts. He'd given them prophets. He'd given them the word. He'd given them the law. And he gave them the Messiah. And Jesus came. He preached love. He gave the true intent of the scripture. He did miracles to authenticate who he was. And did the people repent and trust in him? Uh Uh-uh. They called him, you son of the devil. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh with with hardly anything, even a loveless prophet, repented. You've done the opposite. They're going to condemn you. Let me tell you another person. He says, verse 42, the queen of the south, she will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, this is an event that's recorded in First Kings chapter 10, where this this woman, the queen of Sheba, it's she's believed to come from modern day Yemen. You guys all know where Yemen is, right? Who? Anybody? Hi. Well, we need a little geography. Lesson. OK, you know where Saudi Arabia is. Oil, right? Uh, underneath Saudi Arabia, south of it is Yemen. And that's where this queen comes from. She had heard of the wisdom of Solomon. And so she made her way up the Red Sea, all the way through the Sinai Peninsula, all the way up to Israel. We're talking a significant journey. She didn't hop on her jet, okay? They had, like, guys rowing her. Or maybe she swam. I don't know. But she got there. It took a long time. She brought a lot of gifts. She came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She was so intrigued. She had such a yearning to hear, to come, to know. And she embraced the one true God because she came to understand God from Solomon. He says, you know what? That woman is going to stand up and condemn you because I came to you. I came to your hometown. The Messiah is here. I have shown you everything and you've rejected me. And he says, you know what? Something greater than Solomon is here. If you've been tracking, remember in 126, he says, I'm greater than the temple. Then he says, I'm greater than Jonah, the prophet. And now he says, I'm greater than Solomon. The three primary institutions of Israel. Prophet, priest, king, Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of those. I am the one. Now, Jesus then tells this little parable. This is an interesting one. I'm sure that as you've been kind of reading through, you're like, what in the world? This is not your typical parable. Uh, You won't probably find this covered in most children's books when they cover the parables of the Bible. But he tells this parable about the unclean spirit. Look at verse 43. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, 
swept and put in order. And they're like, whoa, what does this mean? And then verse 45, he says, then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Then Jesus says, that is the way it will be also also be with this evil generation. Now, let me tell you what Jesus is saying here. He is giving this parable about evil spirits. When he talks about waterless places, the idea is that if you were in a waterless place, you were in a God forsaken place. And so that's the, idea, the thought back then was that that's where the demons would reside in the desert. So, for instance, when Jesus is in the desert, remember in Matthew chapter four, he is tempted by who? Satan, because that's where he hangs out, right? In the God forsaken place. And so Jesus has used this and he says, this, let me tell you this story. There was a guy who had this unclean spirit. OK, and they had seen people with unclean spirits. And that unclean spirit vacates, and this guy kind of cleans up his life. He has what we call reforms. He is turning over a new leaf. He's cleaning up his act. And so this spirit, he finds some gods are even worse off than him, which is interesting because there obviously are not only demons, but some demons are worse than others. He says they're worse than me, right? Seven worse than himself. And then they go and they occupy this house that has been cleaned up. And Jesus says that last state is even worse than the first. And what he is saying there is that's what it'll be. You see the end of verse 45? That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. You see, this is what I think Jesus is pointing at and driving at. The Jews had really tried to clean up their act, so to speak. You see, when they got hauled off to Babylon in 586 BC, God got it through their head. I don't want you bowing down to six idols and little stone figures in your house. I want you to honor me. And so they cleaned out all those things. God brings them back. But in place of those idols, they started putting their traditions. And they really ramped it up with all the many traditions. In fact, their confidence was in following their own rules and regulations. And so they cleaned up their house. But the reality was is that they never had their life filled with the presence of God. And I don't want you to miss this. Moral reforms are not helpful. In fact, they can be harmful if you are not filled with the presence of Christ. If you don't, it's, reform is nice. We like people cleaned up and following rules and laws. But Jesus says, uh-uh, you got to have me. If you're just a house that's cleaned up, and you don't have my presence, your next state will even be worse. And that is really interesting because oftentimes in today's modern American Christianity, we are proclaiming a message of doing good, following good Christian morals. And there are a lot of people that think that if I follow a Christian ethic, I must be a Christian. They're kind of cleaning up their house, but you need Christ. You need regeneration, not just reform. And so Jesus says, you know, that's what it's going to be like for you. You've kind of cleaned up your act and since you follow those rules. But you're absent of me. And that last state is going to be worse than the first. And so I, the question I have for you to find out, are you really in relationship with God? Is, have you, like the men of Nineveh, have you repented? And are you truly trusting Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, there's just one final question. By the way, I, I see this. I saw on the Jonah thing. Do you think you're too sophisticated to believe that story of Jonah? <laughs> come on. Little fish, man. Come on. That might be good for the kids. But I ain't going to believe that. Jesus did. And he said, 
that is the picture of what's going to happen to me when I go and I die for your sins and I'm buried and I'll rise again. Before you dismiss it as some sort of mere children's story, Jesus believed it completely, absolutely, and said, it pictures me. And if you're thinking, you know, I need some sort of miracle for God, just, just God, you just do some miracle and I'll believe in you. You know what? The answer that he gave the Pharisees and the scribes is the answer he gives today. I've already given you all that you need. In fact, that's how John ends his gospel. He says, you know what? Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The only miracles that you're going to have are the ones now revealed in Scripture, he says. Will you believe? Have you repented and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, the final question I just want to put before you is this. How do you respond to the Father's revealed will? Well, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the crowds. You see that? The crowds are all gathered around. This must have been interesting. Behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And verse 47, someone said, whoa, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Okay, so here's a situation where mom and uh, Jesus' mother, his earthly mother, and his brothers have come, and they have obviously heard about the heated exchanges that have taken place. I'm sure that the Pharisees, the word had rumored out that they're out to kill this man. In fact, remember they said in chapter 12, we're going to destroy him. And so they're coming to, like, rescue Jesus. They're probably trying to get him to back off, get out of here. Let's take you away. Let's take you someplace so these guys can cool down and you can live. And that's now a couple just a couple things here. It's interesting when you see Mary. First of all, uh, Mary has no special privilege of, quote unquote, divine access to access Jesus anytime she wants. It's never recorded in scriptures. I, I mention this because. There are millions and millions of people today, most of which are in the Catholic Church, that are actually praying to Mary because they believe that Mary has divine access to Jesus and can get Jesus to basically do what Mary wants. And is that the case here? No. Where did that all come? That, there's a guy named Epiphanius. He actually comes up with this in the fourth century where he has this idea that Mary has special privilege. And the idea is is that Mary is a perpetual virgin, okay? That she never had any other children. Now, when you read this, you're like, well, that's interesting because his mother and brothers were there. All four Gospels actually record his brothers. In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 13, you're going to find out Jesus actually had half-sisters as well as half-brothers. And so just to, just to kind of make sure that you don't fall into an error of thinking that Mary is some sort of co-redemptrix or I pray to Mary to get Jesus to do what I want, Never works that way. Certainly doesn't work here. Well, so Mary and his brother, Mary and his brothers come. They want to get, speak to Jesus. And Jesus then says this, verse 48. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And verse 49, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my brothers, my mother and my brothers. He points to his disciples. He said, my mother and my brothers. He says, verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, the one who is rightly related to me is not someone who comes through a bloodline, but who's someone who does the will 
of my father. Now, this is pretty radical because notice Jesus actually refers to like sisters. You see that? Whoever is my, you see that? Whoever is my, who are my mother and my brothers? Okay. He says, whoever does the will of my father. He actually includes whether you're male or female, Jew or Gentile. You have to do the will of my father. Now, who, what is the will of the father? Well, John said, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him on the last day. God's will is what? That you believe in his son. And when you believe in him, there is going to be a willingness to obey him. So it's not just that you, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'll never follow him or obey him. If you truly believe, there is going to be a desire to obey and to do his will in your life. These are the ones who are rightly related with Jesus. And so what I want to tell you, friends, is this. What you do with Jesus and his words reveals whether or not you really have relationship with God. What you do with Jesus and his words, that reveals whether or not you really have right relationship with God. And by the way, this is of critical concern. I hope that you do not miss this. Uh, Recently, I was talking with a guy who came to Christ a little bit later in life. And he said, the reason I had so much trouble of coming to Christ is because of all the inconsistent Christians that he met. And he talked about like these people that they, I mean, they said they were Christians. They just kind of used God for whatever they could get out of him. And yet they were out partying, drinking, sleeping around, all their immorality. And he's just like, that didn't make any sense. It was totally incongruous. In fact, incongruent behavior leads to confusion, if not rejection of the Savior. You see, the things that Jesus is talking about, what you say, what you believe, and how you act. Do you do the will of the Father or could you care less? You see, that speaks about what's going on inside. I was reading about this uh, missionary training school and this guy that was in the class. He's writing his experience. It's their first day of missionary training school. These missionaries are going to head off to China. This lady, the instructor, walks in, but she doesn't say anything. She just starts walking down the aisles through all the, all the class uh, students sitting there in their, their rows. Doesn't say anything. They're all kind of looking at her like, you know, what, what's going on? She walks out. This is weird. And then she walks back in and she goes, okay. What did you notice? Did you notice anything? And they're all like puzzled. No one knows anything. Then finally one gal, she says, you know what? I noticed that you had some really lovely perfume on. <laughs> They're all laughing. And she goes, that is exactly the point. Long before you learn enough Chinese to be able to communicate with the people, they're going to be able to smell the scent of Christ in how you live. And how are they going to see it? They're going to see it in the words. What do you really say about Jesus? They're going to see in how you believe And they're going to see it in how you live. See, what we do with Jesus and his words, you know what? That really reveals to us whether we have relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing section of scripture. That though some some of this may be hard to understand, it speaks, speaks with great clarity as to what it means to know you and to follow you. 
And Father, I pray right now that if there's some people that are here today who have been making radical assumptions about relationship with God. And today you finally have broke through and they realize that I need to trust the Savior, the Son himself. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, you know about my heart and about my words. You know about my sin. You know what I've thought about, what I've done. I confess it all to you as sin. And I trust your son, Jesus, as the payment for it. I yield everything in my life to you. And I ask, Lord, that you would bear much fruit through my life. And Father, for all of us, may we not take lightly the things that are most important. To realize that we who know you have the responsibility through the Spirit of God working in our life to reflect you in our words, in our beliefs, and in our behavior. And so, Lord, would you help this to be a reality for all of us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.